Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And now, another no-brainer money-saving tip from Progressive. Marcus, what happened? I was changing my oil and I spilled some on the floor. Oh, we'll use these $50 bills to wipe it up. Perfect. Got any more? Yeah, yeah, take a couple hundred. Stop. Instead of using money, use an old rag. And here's a better tip from Progressive on how not to waste money. Don't pay too much for car insurance. Drivers who switch and save could save hundreds. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Potential savings will vary. You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2. Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD, along with me for the ride, as always, is Will the Thrill. And I am not the host, LD. Very good, honey. And TJ2, the deuce. That was a bottle cap hitting the table. I I don't have a can today. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Fair enough. What what is in the bottle is the question. This is a Shiner Cerveza. They're Mexican style uh, lager, I believe, made with some agave, and uh, it's lovely. Yeah, I think it's like the Otraves by Sierra Nevada, isn't it? It kind of, uh, well, this, it's, it's like, um, a slightly more tasty Corona. Okay. And, um, boy, on a warm South Carolina day, I could demolish quite a few of these. (laughs) This is some easy drinking, tasty beer. So talking about something that's not so easy is we are finishing up our series on David Bowie, which we started back in 1992. And, uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> after 58 episodes yeah <laughs> yes this has been uh yes this has been like birthing a baby well actually it's been like conceiving carrying it to term and then birthing it. yes this is this has been a journey the grand culmination of yes. well because it, a it, it's a five-part episode which is understandable given who we're talking about but then the other thing is is that you know ld had an, an absolutely berserk work schedule for a couple of weeks and we were unable to record so this is actually stretched out now over seven weeks so yeah i was i think younger. this makes it the the longest in terms of when we started and when we finished the longest series that we've done yeah ever yeah i am so much older now than when we started you could actually see 
the progress in my life, the changes. It was so long ago when we started this. I know we've all changed as people since then. <laughs> and it's also in depth because when you have someone who did well everything, I mean, how do you sum it up in five episodes? And his music career, just his music career, was like 50 some odd years long. Yeah. And then you have he was an actor, he, you know, he was on Broadway, he, you know, had fashion personas. art. Yeah, I mean, it's just crazy. Oh, and met uh, Satan, which lived in his pool. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. yeah. And one which under normal <laughs> circumstances would be like one whole podcast just unto itself. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so let's dive into the last 26 years of David <laughs> Bowie's life. Good Lord, man. Why did you have to do everything? I even think our, our series on Freddie Mercury was, it was five episodes, but one of them was solely based on the film, Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. So like, right. that's actually only like a four-part series. So David got one more than Queen. So I guess I'm going to have to go back and do another episode on Queen. <laughs> right, we'll have to retroactively go find other stuff to write about Freddie Mercury. <laughs> the Queen appendices, yeah. Yes. So when we last left David, he he had tried out boxing recreationally. He had done Labyrinth. Uh, he had had a three-year affair with uh, Susan Sarandon. For three years? For three years. Oh, my. Uh, what else did he do? What, what else did he accomplish in his life the last time we, we talked about him? Um, he had done Labyrinth, and he had done a couple other movies, and... Uh, he'd had his most commercially successful album yep. uh, when I, last we met. I think the overarching achievement here is he's managed to attain generational relevance now for a number of cycles, if you will. Well, we're yeah. about to lose that. Oh, so, okay. well, no one can hit a home run every time, I guess. Not even David Bowie. Nope. So the, the, this actually was a home run. So the legend holds that the celebrity hairstylist Teddy Antolin, a mutual friend who had actually toured regularly with David Bowie, had set him up on a blind date with Iman <laughs> at his own birthday party dinner in Los Angeles on October 4th, 1990. But actually, they had already met uh, backstage at a gig. So, but the, but the, the being set up on a blind date is always like a cuter story than, yeah, they met backstage. With a super. Right. Yes. But when they met on that particular occasion, it was fireworks. David famously remarks that he had started naming their children that first night. My attraction to her was immediate, all-encompassing, he told Hello Magazine in 2000, that, that she would be my wife. And in my head, it was a done deal. And I've never gone after anything in my life with such passion. I knew that she was the one. Now think about that statement. He had never gone after something with so much passion than he did for Iman. Yeah, considering his career up to this point. That's, yeah. That's quite a statement. Yes. So um, on the blind date, David arrived in a white Mustang and he was wearing a white shirt, white pants, white shoes, white jacket. So there's a site for you. And Iman showed up in a black Mercedes wearing all black leather. <laughs> <laughs> so I couldn't be more perfect. Uh, the minute that she walked in, everybody looked at her. She had this big smile on her face. And when David saw her, it was love at first sight. You could actually feel the electricity in the room and something went off. They spent the night talking to each other like they had known each other forever. And they just kind of looked at each other like, hey, should we just skip dessert and go home? <laughs> that was the, the general consensus. There was nobody else in that room except for those two. <laughs> and that's, that's how it was from that point on. When it came to David and Iman, it was 
the two of them against the world. Publicist Chris Poole was almost gleeful at the memory. When David Felfrey Mon, Alan Edwards and I looked at each other and went, Coco, ooh, <laughs> this could be interesting. What's going to happen now? Coco had hated Angie with a vengeance. She made no secret about that. So how on earth was she was going to handle this one? And funny enough, I can't actually find any information on how Coco actually handled it. Because remember, David can't get rid of her because she knows where all the bodies are. Like she knows. Yeah. But then, of course, there's also a difference here because David and Angie pretty much said up front that they didn't really love each other. That it was a marriage of convenience and it's not a thing that either of them expected to last. So I I doubt that David much cared how Coco treated her. But this, this obviously seems different. Yes absolutely but here's the here's the miracle of it coco actually hangs on coco actually hangs on she is with david bowie by his side till the day he dies so i don't know if she compartmentalized it or what but but somehow she you know she survived um so she she coco was actually at the wedding which we'll talk about in a little bit spoiler alert (laughs) David took a couple months off and then everything went into overdrive, getting ready for the tin machine to go out on the road again. So don't worry, Travis. Don't worry. Don't worry. We're not going to dwell on this. Tin machine can't hurt you anymore. So they went back on the road and they were rehearsing in Dublin. And uh, this was 1991. So just so you guys know, uh, Iman and David met in 1990. You know, at the time, Chris Poole said that they were they were doing their rehearsals in Dublin, and Ireland was practically still a third world country in those days, as he recalled, shoeless urchins and horses and carts. Those <laughs> are his words, not mine. I wow. love Ireland, and I want to go there one day. So please, people of Ireland, understand. That was Chris Poole. So if you hate anybody, hey, Chris Poole. There were a couple visitors uh, during that time to the studio. One of them was Marianne Faithful, who came to see David while they were... Uh, rehearsing and then one night Chris was doing paperwork and he gets a phone call from the producers of the movies far and away oh yeah with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman right and the guy was like hey um Tom Cruise really big fan of David Bowie can he come down and like hang out and Chris was like hang out dude dude we're working he's like yeah but Tom really loves David (laughs) and so he was like so he goes in and he like talks to the whole band. And they're like, yeah, sure, fine. Let him in. So Tom Cruise <laughs> showed up with Nicole Kidman and they hung out with David Bowie for a little bit. And uh, side note, you know who that phone call actually came from? Hmm. Ron Howard. Really? <laughs> Ron Howard was the one that was like, hey, help a guy out. And <laughs> <laughs> it's Ron Howard. Tim Machine were back up for another seven months from August and they wrapped that tour up in Tokyo in February 1992. And after that happened, EMI wasn't really keen on the idea of a second Tin Machine album. Probably much like my brother. <laughs> Me either. He does not need one. <laughs> Neither was I. <laughs> but that's because the first one didn't really get a good reception, which is weird because technically it's a super group led by David Bowie. So David Bowie and Soupy Sales as kids. What could go wrong? <laughs> The answer is Tin Machine. Okay, so so I'm going to tell this story because it was in one of the books I read, and I found it extremely humorous, whether or not it's true. So I'm going to read this verbatim from the book, Hero, David Bowie. Okay, so during the Tin Machine dates in Germany, Chris got to see for himself unexpectedly the most 
intimate rumor about David Bowie was not apothecal. It was downtime. We were back at the hotel and I went to the gym and for a swim. I wanted to grab a sunbed, but there was only one there and it was occupied. So I sat down and wait. After what seemed like ages, I was about to bugger off when the lid came open and out came David, stark naked. It was like Apollo rising from the sea at daybreak. He radiated light and I saw for myself at point blank range that everything I had heard about the most infamous appendage in rock was true. So there you go, David Bowie's junk is huge. Got it, we've confirmed it, we have an account. <laughs> yes, per, per, per some other dude waiting to use a sunbed, David <laughs> Bowie had a big wiener. Film at 11. Breaking news. Yeah. Well, <laughs> probably not, probably not actual film, but yeah. Nope, nope, okay. Uh, now some of you guys know if you're a longtime listener of the show, that of course I am a massive fan of of Freddie Mercury. And um, in November of 1991, Freddie lost his life to bronchial pneumonia. But we we know it's really you know HIV AIDS that took away his T cells. So Queen's magnum opus Bohemian Rhapsody was re-released as a Christmas single, and it soared to number one and raised over a million pounds for the Tarrant Higgins. Trust Age Charity. The following April, on the other side of the grief, the, the Queen frontman got his big send-off. The Wembley Stadium concert stage in his honor before several thousand fans would be described as one of the greatest live rock events of the 90s. Almost everyone who took part performed a Queen song. The show was broadcast to around a billion people in 76 countries and filmed by David Mallett for the future documentary. Artists include... Elizabeth Taylor HIV prevention speech and Liza Minnelli singing We Are the Champions, George Michael doing Freddie's mother's favorite song, Somebody to Love, and then David and Annie Lennox did Under Pressure. And that's what we're going to listen to right now. Oh, man. She's got a cool voice, too. I think David said the Lord's Prayer, if I remember correctly. He actually did. He like dropped to his knees and said the Lord's Prayer. And it was completely impromptu and really odd for someone who considers himself an atheist or an agnostic like he identifies yeah. as.
So that was the uh, the performance of Under Pressure by David Bowie and Annie Lennox to honor. Boy, boy, Annie was all over Dave during yeah. that performance. I mean, all over Dave. It's, they start really far apart, and then she just creeps ever closer to David, and then all of a sudden you're like, sudden Annie Lennox right in your face. Yes. And she, 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 yes, by the end of it, she was not observing any boundaries of personal space where David was concerned. <laughs> there's there's no code I, right now and I, I i vividly recall this concert um i want to say most of it aired live on mtv I, I, I remember watching lots of the performances that you do not see if you just watch the little documentaries or pull up you know like the fact that extreme was there <laughs> yeah and people such as that also i'd like to say whoever came up with this idea and needs like money or a gold star or like some kind of award but whoever suggested that queen and slash should do tie your mother down <laughs> you're a genius yeah, the term pulitzer enters the conversation because like yep. just, just take a second to remember that slash may or may not have walked in on his mother doing the devil's tango with david bowie so did David Bowie tie his mother down? Hey-oh! Hey-oh! <laughs> I don't know what the cat is doing. 
What an interesting childhood one leads. If you you walk in and your <laughs> David Bowie's railing your mom. Wow. Yeah, you have a weird life. You probably you have a really that's uh, that's an interesting existence to lead. <laughs> I would have to say. So I would also like to say just one little other side note. This would actually go on to be John Deacon's last ever live performance with his old bandmates because he yeah. he never got over Freddie's death and we got the opportunity to speak to Dr. Brian May in a symposium on Sir, <sighs> Sir Doctor Sir Doctor Brian May, Brian May Esquire <laughs> Junior about it and you know he said yeah you know John just never got over it he hadn't seen him in years and honestly that was one of the the saddest parts to me although I was in I was being taught about 3D photography by Dr. Sir Brian May Esquire Jr. the third you know did, did he say he and John had contact after you know 20 30 years they, or I think yeah. they've been in contact with each other but nothing on like the, the, that's the collaborative yeah wow that's, that's and that's, john i believe has hung up for good he will not go back to being in queen from my understanding yeah no yeah. just a few days ahead of his uh civil wedding david has he was actually the portrait of health like i think at some point he'd like backed up or backed down on the cocaine oh. you know to the point where he probably wasn't seeing satan in his uh pool or tub or whatever well, okay now from what you've told us uh dave did do a lot of coke Yes. I guess he drank a good bit at one point. I don't, I, maybe not at this point, but now he did continue to smoke, did he not? Yes, he did. And we'll talk about that yeah. a little bit. I was going to say, I think, I, I think that he, he did, because if you saw Dave, he looked like he was, you know, he's thin and he was looked healthy and like he was in good shape. He boxed, which is, <laughs> if you've ever, if you've ever even toyed with that, you, you realize the kind of shape you have to be in to, 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 to even try it. Um, you know what? Just set your clock or get your phone out. Set it for three minutes. Bounce up on the balls of your feet and punch the air for three minutes and see how you feel when it's over with. <laughs> no, I'm good. <laughs> I'm, seriously, I mean, it, it is one of the most grueling workouts that you can do. So if you're doing that, you obviously have to be in pretty good shape. Yeah. yeah. If you watch the video, you'll see what he's wearing, uh, which is like, he's lightly tanned, like you said. He's got a great haircut, but he's got this like, spearmint green suit on with a striped blue shirt underneath it and a green and yellow tie which just like reading this from my script makes me dizzy well if you see it in the video it doesn't change it just makes you dizzy <laughs> but that was the 90s so there we are um mick ronson in contrast looked not so great uh he was wearing an open neck shirt that just kind of hung on his frame the fact was he was desperately ill with liver cancer and there's like some sort of sense of cruel irony because that's what would claim David's life 23 years later. I'm sorry, who's, remind me who Ronson is. Uh, he was one of the spiders from Mars. Oh, okay. okay. And a longtime collaborator and friend of David's. I got you. He was there, but he performed for the final time that night. So this was his, so this was Ronson's last concert and John Deacon's both. Yeah. Mm. Yep. Wow. Okay. But the thing was, Mick was delighted to be there to just be on stage again. So I think a few weeks later, he passed away. But let's just back up a hair when it comes to David and Iman, because uh, that's what the next eight pages are. <laughs> so the the famous couple were fiercely protective of their privacy. But see, speaking six months after David's death in 2016, Iman recalled her relationship with the singer and the links that they went to to ensure that he gave her the perfect wedding ring. Okay. 
So Iman told Entertainment Tonight that the couple had been holidaying in Florence two years prior to their engagement, not long after they first met. Iman had been in a ring shop and saw a ring that she loved. So in 1992, when David was planning to propose, he traveled back to Florence and went to the jewelers to buy the ring only to find out that it was no longer there and had been sold. Not to be put off, David proceeded on the most romantic of treasure hunts, tracked it down to the new owner and proceeded to buy it from them. He went back for it and he found it. Someone had bought it, so he just went and bought it back from them. (laughs) Upon finding his prize, David took Iman to Paris and proposed to the model on the banks of the River Seine. It was sweet, and of course I said yes, Iman said with a smile, recalling the incredible gesture. So, like, literally, you can't just get her another ring. You have to, like, track the dude down that, like, bought the ring and then buy it off them. I mean, that is really sweet. I feel like we could do an entire episode just on that of David Bowie globetrotting to find this ring. Yeah. You could do an entire film on that. Oh, yeah. Nobody steal that. That's my idea. Trademarked. Yeah, Trademarked. Trademark. Yeah, right here. You've heard it on Rock and Roll Heaven. <laughs> so they were married in City Hall in Lusane. And with three divorces between us, uh, given that Iman is actually Muslim, they could not be legally married in a Christian church. So at this civil service, there were two witnesses, but no guests. That service would be followed several weeks later by the full-blown religious service and reaffirmation of vows and the blessings at the Gothic Revival St. James Episcopal American Church in Florence, Tuscany. Pretty place. Beautiful place. Sounds like it. Amon and her bridal party arrived in Florence several days in advance to prepare for the wedding, and David and his son actually spent the few previous weeks at Mystique for Joe and Duncan's 21st birthday So uh, if you guys don't know what Mystique is, it's actually the name of David Bowie and Iman's, for lack of a better word, guys, compound. But uh, just as a side note, like I didn't even write any of this information down. Iman hated Mystique. And for all of like the hemming and the hawing, here's the thing. Most of the people that worked at Mystique were black. And Iman really didn't like that, especially when she saw the quarters that they lived in were really kind of like shabby, shanty torn down estates so she actually uh got david to sell mystique and they moved to new york but uh yeah so they were there now there were a few logistical hiccups and a temper tantrum the night before chris pool remembers that it could have been all off we had a done deal with a photographer who was brian Harris to do all the pictures for the magazine hello and on the evening of the ceremony we were all at dinner at the hotel And David is, he's got the entire party there. He's got his family there. He's got everyone that's important to him is is there. And then all of a sudden, all hell broke loose. Brian started making a terrible fuss because the the steak tartare that he had ordered had not been done to his liking. And he created such a fuss about it. The manager lost it and a huge argument ensued. There was a massive blow up. The entire party almost got thrown out, (laughs) which is really bad because they wouldn't have any place to say nowhere to have the wedding, nowhere to have the reception. And it was absolute pandemonium. How do you screw up not cooked steak? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, That's your, that's your question? How do you screw up uncooked steak? This is, I'm fascinated by this. Well, it mattered to Brian. Clearly. And, and apparently it wasn't done well enough to his liking. They finally talked the manager down, but according to Leslie Ann Jones, the author of the David Bowie book, she doesn't think David ever truly forgave Brian 
but he did go on to shoot the wedding and David would have him back eight years later to do baby pictures once their daughter Alexandria was born. Uh, sweetly enough, they slept in separate bedrooms the night before their wedding. Hmm. How cute is that? The service was to be conducted by Reverend Mario Marzale, and that took place at the St. James Church in Florence. The wedding was set for 4 p.m. the next day, which was Saturday, June the 6th. 1992, and that was a significant date because it was the 20th anniversary of the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. Oh, wow. So at the location, there were tons of looky-loos. There was a helicopter that had been circling the church all morning. A giant crowd gathered because, like, that tipped everybody off that, like, something was happening because of this stupid helicopter and the tons of people, like, crowding the church. And uh, I guess Yoko Ono was almost <laughs> swept away by the crowd because she like stepped off the the hotel bus to go to the church. Did she think of did she think of perhaps repelling the crowd by singing? <laughs> by doing her, her scream sing thing. It's a superpower. <laughs> Woo! That cleared me out. Yeah. So it rained, but as an old adage, it says, if it rains on your wedding day, you're supposed to have good luck. Apparently, a rainy wedding is said to signify the cleansing of the past, the renewal of unity, fertility, and it it symbolizes the last tears the bride will shed until her death. That's quite poignant. Okay. Okay, but here's the thing. As a note, it did rain on mine and Mr. Will the Thrill's wedding day as well. Yeah. We are still married and I haven't killed him yet. Oh, it poured that day. Yeah. It was torrential. Well, <laughs> TJ can attest yeah. that he was there. Uh, yes, it sure did. That was at your that out was... at your outdoor wedding when there were scary, scary black clouds rolling in it at at a at a, a speed that was sort of it's it's one of, it was one of those deals where it's almost like somebody was unrolling a carpet. That <laughs> that's how quickly the, the the thick, scary black clouds just whoosh, right over us. And we, and we were being oh crap, <laughs> and, and we were being taunted by the local waterfowl. If I remember, yeah, they like take out yeah. like yeah, my dad when uh, when I was escorted to my father. He took my arm and he goes, our, our pastor's name was Trey, and he, he he goes, tell Trey to hurry this shit up. It's going to rain. Yeah, you, you got about, what is it, 12 minutes? Or you got about you 12 said? minutes, yeah. and the sky's going to drop. And drop it, dude. And it did. It showed sure did. Anyway, that was a day. <laughs> so the, the ceremony was a non-traditional event, like you do. Iman entered to the sounds of a Bulgarian folk song, which is the evening gathering, and I am not even going to attempt to try to pronounce the actual Bulgarian name of that song or by the composer because I'll just get myself in trouble. But oh, it was the evening gathering. Yes, the yeah, evening okay. gathering. And the other music from the service was actually composed by David Bowie himself. Was it Uncle Arthur? Did they it play Uncle no, Arthur? No, they did not. They, I don't know if they played Uncle Arthur, but God, I hope not. I'm gonna research that. Okay. Uh, those who attended did say it was a gray and you know cloudy day, but the skies began to clear. And when they emerged from the church after the wedding during golden hour, it was sunny and bright. Of course it was. Classical music performed by a group of Italian musicians played in the guest, except for Bono, who had missed his flight. Wait, he missed the wedding? Well, he missed the wedding, but he <laughs> made it in time for the reception and the photos. Got it, okay. And if you so look among the, the attendees at this wedding, Yoko Ono Bono. and Bono. Oh, the list from when I see gets longer, doesn't it? I can see some other names on here. Yes, yeah. So, like, his friends from, uh, you know, uh, early on, like George Underwood, were there. But uh, Eric and Tanya Idol were there. Yeah. Bono, Yoko Ono, the Teddy and Tolan which was their, the person who set them up, they were there. 
So I mean, like, there were not a whole lot of guests. I think there were like 68 guests. And but although oddly, although oddly, I will say, Bussing Tables was the bass player for Glass Tiger. If only oh he would have been. Uh, yeah, they would have been just coming up at this time. He'd probably need a side gig. Yeah. Wow. Glass Don't Tiger. Forget me when I'm gone. Anyway, it was stunning. <laughs> David was very happy, and he had never looked better, and he was so sharp. Uh, he did make a speech at dinner, and then they went to dance. Uh, and I guess David put together, like, the tape that the DJ played, because there was some disco on it and some dance music, some of his music, but not too much. It was a fun party. The music included several pieces written by Bowie, one which included The Wedding and The Wedding Song and Hollis and Thena, which ended up on the 1993 album Black Tie, White Noise. Mm -hmm. Writing the music brought my mind around to obviously what commitment means and why was I getting married at this age and what my intentions were and were they honorable? And he laughs. Ha ha. That's one of those same things. Uh, and what I really wanted for my life moving on. David and Iman left the party at 1 a.m. the following morning, leaving later that day for their honeymoon Their honeymoon in Indonesia and Japan. According to Iman, my honeymoon was my best vacation ever. We got married in Florence, Italy, and went to Bali for two and a half weeks and then went to Kyoto for one week, and it was just a divinely sexy trip. Can you take me on a divinely sexy trip, Will the Thrill? To, to those locations? I'm no, sure I, I, I no, just... I, so they so they honeymooned for like a month. Yeah. Wow. Mm. Yeah, yeah. See, um, TJ, maybe you don't realize this, but when um when you're rich and you're famous, <laughs> you can do stuff like that, which was why we should really work to become rich and or famous. Yes, I wish I was either. <laughs> yeah. If you'd like to contribute to our Patreon, <laughs> I'll be giving that out at the end yeah. of the episode. So I'm going to have to interrupt myself right now for a short sponsor break, and we will be right back. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only, right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Back. And we are back, and we'll jump back into David Bowie. Just as a cute little side note, or as a sweet little side note, you know who David's best man was? Who? His son, Duncan. Classy. Which was so sweet, because apparently they had, like, the same haircut, the same tan, the same outfit. Like, they could have been brothers. Mm -hmm. It was really, really cute. So, in October of 1995, Bowie was interviewed by writer Simon Witter, who asked what he considered to be his greatest achievement. Bowie instantly replied, marrying my wife is the most successful thing I ever did in my life. He followed that up by attempting to elicit an answer about his musical career, but Bowie brushed it off saying, nothing else counts. Wow. That is so sweet. It's, it is. And also, she was a supermodel, so I would have just done like a Vanna White style hand gesture toward her. Yeah. What's your greatest accomplishment? I mean, <laughs> come on. Gestures, yeah. Have you seen my wife? Yes. Have you seen the woman I'm married to? She is a supermodel. Yeah. I think it was more that she was... You can't just be like, she's a supermodel. I think Iman was incredibly smart. She spoke oh, five, sure. she spoke oh, five yes. different languages. Yeah, that's absolutely. not from her intelligence. Oh, absolutely. But I'm just, but I'm just saying, you know, she's not, uh, she's not unattractive. 
I, I know, but you can't, you just can't like, look, everybody knows I'm a smoke show. So, but there's so much more than just what's on the outside of me that he married, you know, I'm funny ish, pretty kind of smart, like, uh, well, spark, sparking, spoken is his. I got that, yeah. yeah. You're making up words. <laughs> all, all, all words, words are made, made up. up. Perhaps, perhaps it's your, gra- perhaps it's your grasp of the lexicon. <laughs> Uh, so we'll we'll touch base with Iman back and forth a little bit. But no, she I, is, she is still with us, correct? Yes. Okay. Yes, she is. Okay. Um, what's the nicest way to put this? I listened to several books. I read several books. I have looked up different documentaries on David Bowie's life. I've looked up YouTube clips, and it took me forever to dig up this information because for some reason, like after he marries Iman, there's like a black hole that he just falls into and just doesn't like from the outside it doesn't seem like he ever comes out Hmm. but that is not true that's just not true however i listened to a book on tape where literally during the period that is supposed to be like david bowie's 90s era i think that the author had like a nervous breakdown while writing this (laughs) chapter because she starts talking about how like her life isn't what she wanted it to be and she had two marriages under her belt and she no longer could be like the groupie that like wandered around and talked to rock stars she has like a midlife crisis just (laughs) in this book and then she talks about iman for about two and a half chapters about how she was she lied about her mysterious background where she was like a goat herder but no she was like actually the child of a diplomat so getting information for david bowie in the 90s was like pulling teeth from an angry crocodile that had been living in the dark for a really long time. So, so here I go. Even if you think that Bowie's hits began with 1969 Space Oddity followed by the 1971's Changes, I think most folks will agree that his really big hit came with Ziggy Stardust. I was going to say Uncle Arthur. Shut up about Uncle Arthur. Stop it. <laughs> no, you're not allowed to say Uncle Arthur <sighs> for at Fine. least a half an hour. House rules. Starting the timer now. Fine. (laughs) For the rest of the 70s, phases of his career were noted by which character appeared on stage because you had Ziggy, Aladdin Sane, Diamond Dogs, Thin White Duke, the Puro from Ashes to Ashes, and even in 1993 when he went mainstream with Liz Stance, he was more like the Thin White Duke's brother than actual Hmm. Bowie himself. Like Bowie, Bowie himself is a persona of a person because remember, he's not David Bowie, he's David Jones. Correct. So his whole persona within a persona within a persona. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And and a very sweet thing that Iman did say that I don't think I, I included here, but I will just kind of throw it into the ether was that she said that she loved David very much, but she didn't fall in love with David Bowie. She actually fell in love with David Jones, hmm. which is why her daughter's name is Alexandria Jones. To get some of those. Yes. Yeah. So I think you left out one of the favorite quotes you shared with me that David said about Iman. Which was? Uh, he described her as being intolerably sexy. Is intol- that what it was? Yes. Yeah. David said that I find her intolerably sexy. Which you can just hear that in David Bowie's voice. Tell me you can't. Yeah. So even in 1987 and his overtly and in retrospect too bombastic glass spider store, <laughs> uh, you can make the case that it was the characters that mattered more than the music. Heck, if you hear Suffragette City or List Dance or Scary Monsters, you think of more of how he looked than how good the songs are. 
And I, I don't disagree with this author's take on it because you do think of that persona that David Bowie is playing. However, if you listen to it in a medium that is not visual, you do understand how fantastic his music is. Mm -hmm. So it just depends on how you're consuming the media of how your perception of David Bowie's music actually is. But um, his image really mattered to him. But for Bowie, it was the music that mattered the most. And his 1990s catalog proves it. A lot of fans at the time were worried about what would be the outcome of Tin Machine. <laughs> because it was pretty, it was pretty great. Yes. Guys. I, I, yes, I, I worried that, you know, he'd keep doing it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was the, that was what most people were worried about. Was he, was he just trying to be a member of the band? Like, doesn't he know that's impossible? Like, you can't, you can't throw David Bowie in a band and like, he just sinks to the back. Like that's not going yeah, to happen. No. And I just don't think Tin Machine was cranking out the stuff that 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 Bowie was really known for. And also, like it was much more of a collaborative effort than I think he had ever undertaken. Because really, he had only worked with like himself and one more person at a time. Mm -hmm. So it'd be him and Tony Visconti, him and Tina Turner, you know, him and Mick Bronson. Like he would deal one on one with someone when creating his stuff. So 10 machine was like, here's like what four people that you now have to like figure out. So he just wanted to get back to his roots, get back to why he wanted to be a musician in the first place. And in the mid 1960s, Bowie then was going by his given name of David Jones. And he was in a, a series of bands. Why am I doing this retrospect? Because the 10 Machine experience kind of placed a bookend at the first phase of his career after putting his extensive back catalog to rest in the 1990s Sound and Vision tour, which was apparently a massive tour. <laughs> Bowie returned to what got him first interested, which was jazz and playing the saxophone. Black Tie White Noise is the result. With that record, Bowie pays homage to his musical heritage that influenced him in the 50s and the 60s while still sounding really modern. Now, Rogers, like we talked about in the last one, produced that album, which if you'll remember from the last episode, he was the one that produced Let's Dance. Oh, yeah. Uh, Lester Bowie, the avant-garde trumpet player, is actually featured heavily, and Mick Ronson and Mike Garrison, members of Ziggy Stardust Band, were in the studio. The semi-autobiographical jump, they say, was the most popular from the CD, and the rest of the music, including some of the instrumentals that he had first actually come up with in the 70s, gyrated between pop, dance, jazz, and fantastic yet underrated ballads. Sinatra would have been proud. <laughs> oh, and while Bowie is known for his often dour outlook on life and reflects that through the song. His then recent marriage to Iman made it a little bit more energetic, a little bit sweeter, a little bit more sentimental. Now, I played a little bit of Jump You Say from uh, that album last week, and I think we all agree that it wasn't the best way to eulogize his brother, which is why we played the Bule Brothers, mm. but it's not a terrible song. And that same year he recorded and released music for the BBC program, Buddha of Suburbia, which was a collection of experimental music, which is now one of the big things that David Bowie was really proud of when he looked back on his back catalog. The music, I'm just going to play it. I'm just going to play Buddha of Suburbia because uh, for us, it's a little strange and it's a little off-putting, but I actually really enjoy it. So here is David Bowie's The Buddha of Suburbia. Living in lies by the railway 
and we're back. I have never right. yeah, actually, no one, no one from no one for me as well. Funny enough, there is a moment in that song where it almost sounds like he's going back to the major the chord, yeah. dun, 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 and I almost wanted to go. But it's done on an electric. It's yeah, a, it's interesting. Yeah, almost sound like new wavy. I mean, it, yeah, 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 but, but we're but oddly we're quite a ways past what, what new wave at this. Oh, point. we yeah. are we are well into grunge at this point. Well, this is right. this is ninety five. So, so jumping back into his timeline, Bowie and Eno collaborated on 1995's Outside, which was a concept album, somewhat bloated, but it marked an example of what David Bowie had done throughout his career, took stock of the musical trends, and took a step ahead. So grunge at this time had really taken hold, but there was also an undercurrent of like industrial rock that was starting to bubble up. Well, I would say though, it's it's funny that one of the one of the hallmarks, not hallmarks, but I think one of the the real gems of the grunge movement is a cover of one of his songs. Yeah, yeah, and also we're gonna talk about who was on the tour because this was really really neat. But we're gonna back up and talk a little bit about the uh, the, the recording. So uh, they actually collaborated in '94, and what resulted was the concept album Outside, which was released in '95. And he, that's actually under Virgin Records. So I don't know if he had left EMI or brokered a deal with Virgin, but it actually came out on Virgin Records. Hmm. The Complex Project explored the increasing obsession with the mutilation of human bodies as art and the paganization of Western society. Basically, like, remember in 95 when everybody started to get their belly buttons pierced and gauges started to be a thing in the ears and uh, there was a lot of new tattooing, like the, the scarring and the branding and stuff like that, like... And then people started doing the hanging, like the mutilation, like the um, where they put the hooks in their backs so that they could hang. Yeah. And you also had this reflective of, I think, the music videos at the time. You know, you had like Nine Inch Nails and mm-hmm. yeah, the I mean, even further would be like Skinny and, Puppy and Cradle and, of Filth, which took it way yeah. over the edge. Yeah. And and again, uh, f- funny you should mention that particular group, Will, Nine Inch Nails, because... Because that's coming up right now. We'll have something. We've got something coming. Oh, yeah. Yep. Absolutely. The tour began a few weeks before the album's release, which was something new. Normally, you release the album, wait a couple weeks, tour, you know, let people take it in. But they actually started the entire tour based on this weeks ahead of its release. So, guess who was the supporting act on the U.S. leg of that tour? There we go. Nine Inch Nails. Mr. Trent Reznor. Who segued their set into Bowie's to form a continuous show. Now, should be said, and I don't know if I've ever said this, but to me, Morrissey is a whiny baby child. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, he's, he's, I feel like he is, um, oh God, what's the word? A child. I'm going to get so much hate, but the beautiful thing about music, guys, is we all have our opinions. And my opinion... We do. And, and, you know, once upon a time at a little thousand-watt radio station, we had a guy who worked at night who I think was kind of a stoner, and he played a lot of weird alternative music. He played Morrissey one time. And I'd just gotten back from a ball game or something, and I'd recently read an interview where Morrissey said that he did not have sex. He was asexual completely. And I informed said stoner host of this. I said, you know... You just played Marcy there. You know, he just announced that he is asexual. And I said, do you know what that means? I, and he said, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know. I said, I think it means that he 
doesn't have a penis on a thousand watt little AM hometown radio <laughs> And that that is not germane to the subject in any way, but I just felt like telling that story. Yeah, I'm sorry. I just, I've never liked Morrissey. I, I, not my favorite. No, not, not, my, not favorite. my favorite. Sorry. Do you like Morrissey, honey? Not in particular. I know okay. a lot of people do. At least I, at least we stand together united. The views of LD, uh, TJ2, The Deuce, and Will the Thriller, not reflective of our network in any way but they should but they should be because they saw us. <laughs> <laughs> i'm so sorry to the morrissey fans i do apologize yeah, yeah, three, two, one. yeah we're gonna get a lot of hate i'm leaving this in specifically because like i'm making a stand guys new year new you <laughs> i don't care if you know how much i hate phil collins or i think morrissey is a crybaby i just don't care anymore nine inch nails performed the the american leg of the tour and then Morrissey was supposed to take over the European leg of the tour, but he withdrew after nine days because when Nine Inch Nails was like, yeah, we can segue from ours into your set and not have like that block of time where like, you know, you come off and then I come on. You know, there's like a 10, 20 minute downtime yeah. In, yeah. In, in concerts where like nobody is performing. They're like- So they made it. So instead of the, okay, opening act plays, then there's a half hour break, then the headliner plays, it, it was contiguous. It went, flowed right from yeah. Nine Inch Nails right into David. Okay. Yeah. And the, the reason why Morrissey was so upset by this was because he was like, but if we go straight into your set, I don't get to do any encores and all, I don't know if, I, I don't know if the, the, the clapping is for you or for me. And, that's and I'm a giant douche whistle. <laughs> My answer to that would be, well, you aren't David Bowie, sir. Yeah. No, yes, no offense, but you're not David Bowie. Very few people are. Yes. And then I do believe that at some point, Alanis Morissette joined him on, on the tour, but I can't, I don't know if she was the U.S. or the European tour. Oh, wow. Yeah. This would have been right around Jagged Little Pill time, right? Yes. Oh, wow. Which, okay. was, which was one of the defining albums of my childhood, like- of the 90s of the, yeah that that was you couldn't escape it and i think that there was a point in high school where they gave all the girls jagged little pill and they gave all the boys pearl jams 10 that, that, that makes sense so yeah so an official live recording from the tour was released in july 2020 which with everything that happened in 2020 i'm like what yeah. did that actually happen i missed that one but it was uh the live birmingham 95 which was released in 2020. Uh, there's there's a there's a lot of French words like ouvrez les chiens. Uh, I don't know what half these words are. I'm sorry. Anyway, an official live recording of that tour was released in July of 2020, and another was released in December of 2020. Oh, wow. Which we missed both of those. Yeah. Because you know. Um, 2020. Which is weird because 2020 had you know nothing. It was such an uneventful year. Yeah, it was, it was pretty boring of a year. I can't imagine why we would miss two releases. Yeah. In 2012, a Rolling Stones reader poll, the tour, pairing Nine Inch Nails with Bowie, was named one of the top 10 opening acts in rock history. That's amazing. I'm not going to argue with that. That's amazing. Top yeah. 10, that's where it should sure. be. Yep. So I'm actually well, What was number one, Jimi Hendrix opening for the Monkees? <laughs> That happened. <laughs> that did happen. Which is a real, which is a real thing that happened. Yeah. Now, okay, just just so I'm clear, he's touring with Nine Inch Nails, but this is not the point when Dave works with Trent Reznor in the studio quite yet. No, that's gonna okay. happen. Okay. That come that come that's still a, a few years off. Yeah. Okay. 
Jimi Hendrix and the Monkees, yep. Number one. <laughs> it's amazing. Okay, so um, <laughs> right now I'm going to play the song Outside. And uh, if I can, just future Lindley, find the Dallas version, play that instead. But right now we're going to play the album version. <laughs>
So what do we think of that one? You, you said it's steering more into like Nine Inch Nails territory. Yeah. And it does certainly sound that way. I personally, of the two you played for me, I liked uh, the Buddha, the yeah, Buddha of Suburbia better. Better. But uh, this is still very interesting. See, and I'm I'm kind of the opposite. I kind of actually like this one a little bit more. Huh. What do you think, T? Which one's your favorite, Buddha of Suburbia or outside? Probably the Buddha of Suburbia. It's a little more ear candy-ish that s- settles into your brain a little more easily than that one did, did to me. Yeah, maybe uh, I just feel like I could lay on the floor and look up at the ceiling and, you know, regret the decisions that I've made in my life. And, yeah. like, she's more introspective for me. You know, I just feel like I could have a midlife crisis with this song. So, but now, really if we're going to get into Dave fully in embracing industrial hard rock here shortly i hope i really like that song it makes me want to kick a beaver in the face and make it dance what song is that the one he does with trent very famously late 90s i actually kind of uh start sprinting straight forward there's not we're halfway through the episode and there's not there's i think i only put in one more song which is the song what you're not gonna play that one I, you know what, I, I knew we were going to be, this one was going to be long in the tooth. And so I, 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 I'm sorry. You are fully able to call an audible. Are you going to mention it? It's, I don't think I do. It is within your right. You don't, you don't even mention the fact that he does an album with Trent. I don't think I did. Really? Then I'm going to audible. Okay. Now you're uh, sure. I'm sorry. LD, I've, I don't, I've, only, I, I've never, I don't think I've ever used this privilege before, have I? I don't think you have. I don't think you have, which is totally, uh, totally fine. It is within your rights of the game. Yeah, I, uh, I want to play it. I want to hear it. What year did it come out? Uh, about 98, okay. 99, somewhere there. Let me jump because we got a couple years prior to that. So mm-hmm. we can call an audible after that. Works for me. Okay, perfect. Just keep an ear out for dates. Okay. So following outside the outside summer 1996 tour in japan the uk and europe and an intensity of a different sort was introduced into the mix with a pair of stunning acoustic performances at the 1996 bridge benefit concert in san francisco that same summer which was the summer of 96 bowie appeared alongside gary ullman christopher walken dennis hopper if anybody watches westworld Jeffrey Wright was in it. Parker Posey's in it. I wish I could. I'm going to butcher this name, but I think it's Besquay, the name of the film. Not Uh sure. Forgive me. But he's, Bowie's actually playing Andy Warhol. It's crazy. (laughs) Interesting. Who, who, who interestingly, he he knew and didn't particularly like. No, I think, I think it was the other way. He, he kind of idolized Warhol, but I don't think Warhol took him seriously in the beginning. I think afterward they did become friends. Okay. So I think that's been like a choppy relationship for the two of them. But he does get to portray Andy Warhol in this film. And Warhol would okay. be and, um, and I'm gonna have to go ahead and tell you, I um, just did a quick little bit of research, and uh, the song I'm talking about actually came out in '95. So I guess I'm audible in now. All right. We so we have an Omaha, audible. Omaha, Omaha, Omaha. What are we doing? We're about to play uh, David Bowie fully embracing industrial heavy metal. And that would be with a song called I'm Afraid of Americans. All right. Which makes me want to break things and, as mentioned previously, kick a beaver in the face and make it dance. All right. So here we go. I'm Afraid of Americans by David Bowie. Yeah. Brent Reznor. (laughs) Woo.
All right, we're back. Oh, yeah, totally worth it. My first ever Audible. Worth it. Love I that song. I forgot about that song until the opening just chords. I was like, oh, that one. That, that, I got to tell you, honestly, if you, if a, if Let's Dance is kind of a dividing line between Bowie past and Bowie present and forward, that's probably my favorite Bowie song, Latter Day. After Let's Dance, I don't know that I have one that I like better than that. I, I do have to say, after Black Black Star is great, but still, still to me, that one right there is different than almost anything else he ever did, and it's it it shows how versatile he is and how he could adopt him adopting a, a different anything different or new is not un, uncommon because he did it throughout his entire career, but, but just he fully embraced industrial metal and did it great. I love that song. Yeah, love that's it. his willingness to embrace something that is emerging. Like he's he totally seamlessly just moves into that and it's like he's been doing that his entire life. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's so funny how relevant he remains now because at this point he's he's what well into his well into his 40s, maybe pushing 50. And again, one of the biggest and best known and and and, and to me best grunge songs was in fact, Nirvana remaking his Man Who Sold the World. Yep. And then you have him working with Trent Reznor and stuff. And he so he just, he he found ways to remain so incredibly relevant musically. Funny um, enough, I have a fun fact for that. Fun fact! Fun fact! On September 11th, 1996, a brand new Bowie track, Telling Lies, would become the first ever song to be offered for download via the internet. In 96? Yep. Wow. Yeah. Yep. So despite the crawling speeds of online. I was going to say, and if you started on Thursday, you might be able to finish by the preceding Wednesday. Yep. People who started their download then are just getting the song now. Right. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I'm looking forward to listening to that song I started downloading 25 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> it's going to be a hit. Yeah. So despite those, you know, the speed at which you could download something which was about the speed of smell <laughs> on, a on a dial-up modem if someone if picked up the phone you were owned yep yeah. if, 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 if you even didn't have smell. a dedicated line you were done uh, <laughs> so telling lies was downloaded more than three hundred thousand times prior to being, for 1996 is that that is impressive really yeah. It really yes. is. Uh, that was prior to it being released as a single that fall. And that eventually showed up on Bowie's next album, Earthling, early in 1997. So that dropped and a world tour followed, spanning from May 1997 through November 1997 uh, during its South American stadium run. One of the things you're documenting here, though, that a lot of people may not even realize, Bowie was continuing to release music. Mm -hmm. It wasn't getting quite the airplay. Not it, it wasn't. I, I, I think I'm afraid of Americans came close to breaking the top forty, but just missed it. Yeah, there's a big gap between. I, I think he had a hit in the late '80s, and then I think actually the week after he died is the next time he charted in the top forty with a single. But he's still making music. Yeah. So the thing is, David never stopped trying new things because 1998 saw the launch of davidbowie.com or Bowie, wow. which is the first artist-created internet service provider and the 1999 Wired Award nominee for Best Entertainment Site of the Year. 
Like, let's consider this. Uh, the many identities of David Bowie. You got Ziggy Stardust, Aladdin Sane, Thin White Duke. We neglect to include his transformation into an internet entrepreneur. In line with David Bowie's reputation for being ahead of his time in all endeavors, it happened several tech booms ago in the late 90s for seeing the internet's potential as a cultural and commercial force. He got ahead of that by not only like launching his own website, which some major artists lacked through the end of the century, but he had his own internet service provider. It's crazy. Yep. So for 1995 a month, BowieNet offered fans not just access to quote-unquote high-speed internet, but to David Bowie, his world, his friends, his fans, live chats, live video feeds, chat rooms, and bulletin boards. So, <laughs> so Wow, internet bulletin boards. How I missed them. <laughs> yeah, well... <laughs> The thing is, he'd actually go in to some of his bulletin boards slash like new, uh, the, what do you call this, chat rooms and stuff like that under the alias Sailor. <laughs> so he would sometimes share updates and recommendations or respond to fans directly. He might endorse an album or... <laughs> and this is, nobody else is doing this at this point. Like nobody. No, no. He would hop on like crack jokes and tell stories and stuff like that. And this is all online. Which And there's, there's, there's one whole other thing that Dave did, and it, it's, it's not an artistic endeavor, so we, you, I mean, it may not have been a thing you included, but, you know, he, I, I think slightly before the time we're talking about now, began selling, or, or I'm trying to remember exactly how it worked, but basically he sold almost stock like futures in his uh, in his album sales and and reaped a gigantic financial reward for doing so. Yeah. So but so basically future sale he he collected futures money almost like he was playing a future stock on his back catalog. And I'm yeah. not explaining this very well, but he basically like hey, would you like to invest in the future sales of my back music catalog and sold that and and made shit tons of money doing it. Oh yeah. Like he, he wasn't looking to capitalize on the internet, but he did. Yeah. So, but he also, but he also capitalized on, or, or he made, took huge advances against his future album sales. It, it's, and again, I'm not explaining this great because I'm dumb and I've had a, a few beers, but it, it netted him quite a lot of money as I recall. Yeah. Well, the fact is he was doing back then what artists did in 2020 when the pandemic hit was like all of a sudden having to find a different way to connect with your fans since you can't do live music or since you know you you we can't we don't have live music right now we just don't and so artists like the bare naked ladies <laughs> were doing the like little concerts at home or people were live streaming garth brooks almost streams daily now just to keep connected with his fans Neil McCoy every morning does the Pledge of Allegiance with his fans. Like, but David Bowie was doing this stuff back in the 90s before anyone even had dial like anything, any way to get onto the internet that didn't start with which I miss. I do miss that the sound. Dial-up noise. You 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 miss what? The dial-up noise. God, uh, the that um Hang on. Oh, so good. Yeah. There you go. 
Oh, I feel better. Classic. I just feel better. <laughs> How could you not? I mean, He's joining us in rock and roll heaven, where we, we will just randomly play the dial-up noise. <laughs> yeah. Okay, it's so heaven. so in 1995, Dave played the title role uh, in the film Exhuming Mr. Rice, a.k.a. Mr. Rice's Secret, to join a prestigious list including B.B. King, Dizzy Gillespie, Quincy Jones, in receiving an honorary doctorate from Boston's Berklee College of Music and to accept the Légion de Hormone in France. And in 1999, he joined Placebo at the annual Brit Awards for a performance of the T-Rex classic 20th Century Boy, a performance that went down so well that the UK's Mirror staged a campaign for the track to be released as a single. That July saw Dave voted as both the biggest music star of the 20th century by readers of the sun newspaper which i think the sun is the trash newspaper i think is it is it the trash newspaper they're like the the one the sun there's the sun and the guardian guardian yeah which one's like the rag mag is that the sun sun yeah okay i think it i think it's the sun yeah well they uh they that was this the sun made them the 20th biggest artist of the 20th century and the greatest star of the century by Q magazine readers. The Q poll also placed David as third in highest ranking living star. So I guess they had two different lists. One was of all time, whether or not they were past, present, or and then one was living. So okay. place place. Um, I also I felt the need to expound on what I said a second ago. So I looked it up and it, I, it it's surmised in about three sentences. In 1997, David Bowie sold asset-backed securities dubbed Bowie Bonds, which were uh, which awarded investors a share of his future royalties for 10 years. Wow. The securities, which were bought by U.S. insurance giant Prudential Financial for $55 million, committed Mr. Bowie to repay his new creditors out of future income and gave a fixed annual return of 7.9%. Jeez. So, but anyway, he, so basically he sold bonds against future sales of his back catalog for $55 million, which isn't quite Sammy Hagar tequila money, but it's a lot of money. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's, it's the amount of money where I'd be like, no, I'm still going to work, but I'll probably but not really. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I couldn't, I couldn't remember exactly how those worked. I remembered something along those lines, but he was selling Bowie bonds as they were called against future sales of his back recording catalog. I can only say between everything that we know about David Bowie from like his later years in life is you can only kind of match him with one other artist, which is Gene Simmons. Mm. The idea of creating something that is brand identified and selling that to your diehard fans. Like you can get a kiss casket. Yes. Yes. And and pinball machines and t-shirts and toys and video games and like literally anything that you could put the kiss makeup on they sold yeah yes always doing the same thing yup sure is so the turn of the century found david enjoying a period out of the public eye emerging only for a handful of rare and meaningful live performances for two consecutive years he pledged his support to the tibet house hey so there you go it's to adam's uh alongside philip glass patty Smythe, and adam yuck Mm, Rest nice. in peace. Uh, to aid in the campaign for free Tibet, 
Each year saw a marked difference in performance. 2001 featured Moby on guitar, rocking a version of Heroes, as well as a rare performance of the Buddhist-inspired Silly Boy Blue, while 2000 saw a unique arrangement of Space Oddity featuring a Adam Yauch on the bass. He was playing bass, nice. Yeah, so Adam Yauch wow. was on the bass for that, yeah. On August 15th of the year 2000, because uh, Y2K didn't happen, <laughs> David and Iman welcomed their first child together, which was Alexandria Zara-Jones. David embraced his role as a new father with enthusiasm, providing hands-on assistance at the birth of his daughter. He cut the umbilical cord and um, just a couple minutes after his wife gave birth, and she weighed seven pounds, five ounces. And David and Amon said that they wanted this more than anything else in the world. They had been trying for years and years. They did, uh, they tried in vitro and then like right under the wire, they managed to have one of their own. So Bowie took time to enjoy fatherhood, but he also began writing a bunch of new songs, which would form the basis of his new album. Now I'm going to talk about something completely off the cuff because we are here in the year 2001. Wow. He took time to be in a little movie <laughs> called Zoolander. Oh, man. Now, Ben Stiller admitted working with him on the first Zoolander was a high point in his career. In his career, Stiller still can't believe that Bowie agreed to appear in the 2001 movie and admits that he was devastated that he learned of the news that the musician had passed away. I'm still in shock that Bowie agreed to do it. It was the best cameo ever for us. He was incredibly gracious and kind to everybody, and he completely got it, as you can imagine. He was a huge influence on people, and I think on our culture for the last 40 or 50 years. So when you go back and look at how long he's been making music, David was so ahead of the curve, I guess. So I think I'm like everybody else. I influenced by him in that way. It was really a high point in my career that he came down and spent time with us. And from what I read, Bowie agreed to do the script directly after reading it because he was just like he got the joke he thought it was one of the funniest things he had ever read so of course he just agreed to do this cameo <laughs> and if you've seen it it is iconic i love him it's just there's a way that he takes his glasses off from like the side of his face to it's it's amazing fantastic cameo. and it's the bowie hair i love like it's the the shaggy like ha it's how I tried to cut my hair it's like parted for, yeah the, like yeah. parted in the center with just like fringy oh that's my Bowie <laughs> so pretty okay so David was actually I, I didn't even realize this me and David were in the same town at the same time wow look at you well he was in New York on 9-11 thus giving us our our uh third and we'll have a fourth coming up with our next series Six degrees of separation between us and the people we're doing. Yeah, well, we we skipped over it, but I have hung out. Well, I, I say hung out. I have been in the same area <laughs> with Trent Reznor on speaking terms with him. So that's <laughs> one one link. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not the so most. That's a pretty direct link. We really had to get Richie to to connect us to Van Halen, but um, Beastie Boys was easy. Next ep next series will be really easy. And uh, this one's this one's pretty close too. So yeah. you moved there on what September seventh? Yep, yep. Yep. 
So I had been there four days, family freaks out. You guys couldn't get a hold of me. I think you were on your way to like getting to your car to drive up there just to grab me when I was like, please don't come here. <laughs> All the bridges and tunnels are closed. You can't. Yeah, from South Carolina. Yes, I was I was set to drive to yeah. New York to uh, come get you. Yep. So after that, uh, he showed his support for his adopted city by performing a short but emotional set at the concert for New York City at Madison Square Garden. He opened the show with a one-man rendition of the Simon and Garfunkel classic, America, and followed that with an uplifting rendition of his own heroes. Hmm. All in attendance and the million watching were moved by the sentiment expressed in both passionate performances. Uh, following that emotional night, a series of new songs that he had started working on showed the, remember when we talked about how he just like in the middle of the night had Coco call Tony Visconti and just say like, I don't need you anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He actually started working with Tony again. So it took him about, what, 22 years? 22. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. To get back with Tony. And as the material took shape, so did a change in outlook toward the music industry and the setting up of Bowie's ISO record label, which would link up with Columbia Records to plan the release of his most eagerly awaited new album. He soon embarked on a scouting trip with Visconti and wound up so taken with a new studio in upstate New York called All Air that he didn't return home until the record was complete. Living on the grounds with his family, he put in a habit of early rising to good use as the album came increasingly and sharply into focus. So... I think the reason why we haven't had any of the David Bowie episodes removed is it, it was with EMI, ISO, and Virgin, and not Universal Music. Oh, because they're the ones that keep coming after us, yeah. <laughs> they took down another episode. Heathen was released in June of 2002, preceded by the single Slow Burn, featuring old friend Pete Townsend on lead guitar, <laughs> and Dave Grohl took up the same role on Neil Young's cover, I've Been Waiting For You. Heathen's release was accompanied by a series of concerts across Europe and U.S., notably David's curatorship of the prestigious two-week-long British Meltdown Art Festival, including acts as diverse as the legendary Stardust Cowboy, comedian Harry Hill, Coldplay, Television, and the Dandy Warhols. David performed low in its entirety alongside Heathen as part of the festival. So he performing... The entire albums. Well, it's probably two, two entire albums, correct? Two entire yeah. albums. Now, when we saw you 2 speaking of Bono, like 18 pages ago, <laughs> it was an incredible concert. It was one of my favorite concerts of all time. But the thing is, that concert was like four and a half hours long. Well, they played the entire, the entire Joshua Tree album. Yeah, they played... Start to finish. Start to finish. And then they played some other songs. Quite but a few. David Bowie is playing two separate albums in their entirety. Oh, I wish I, I wish I was more of an adult and could have just gone to see these. I would have loved to have seen this. Yeah, I wish I was taller. I wish I was a baller. I wish I had a girl who looked good. I would go. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. There's, there's this. Nobody else a fan of. Okay, whatever. Kilo. A year later, the reality album was launched with the world's largest interactive live by satellite event. Because again, you can't just release an album. You have to David Bowie it by <laughs> just having the light. So this was produced by Bowie and Visconti and opening with a one-two punch of the new killer star and the cover of Modern Love, Pablo Picasso, 
Reality rang direct and uncompromising, both musically and philosophically. Because David Bowie can't do anything normal. He's got to just create things that will melt your brain. I gotta be. Yeah. But smoking and touring finally caught up with him. In 2004, he had to cut his tour short. In the year since, going on five, it's been the longest drought of Bowie's career without a new record. He has recorded one-off songs here and there, but performed rarely. And you'd be foolish to think that there wouldn't be another Bowie album out there, but Ziggy is 61. And as much as I hate to admit it, it's possibly all we're going to get. Four. So was the smoking affecting his vocals? That's what I'm trying to figure out here. Well, he had he had a heart issue of some kind, didn't he? Well, you do that much cocaine, and yeah, you're gonna have a heart. No, that. Well, I mean, related to the coke and probably to the smoking. He he did he not have a mild heart attack at some point? Oh yeah, no, 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 no. He didn't have a heart attack. Remember that he thought that he had a heart attack when Angie requested a divorce. No, th- this was much later. This was nine 90s, late 90s. I was thinking he he had perhaps had a mild heart episode of some kind. May not have been a full-on heart attack, but. I, I actually don't know. I didn't come across any of that. The only time I know that he, it seemed that he had a heart attack was when Angie asked for a divorce, passed out, went to the hospital, and they're like, it's not a real heart attack. It's just a fake one, but you got to take care of yourself kind of thing. So, so yeah, in in 2004, it just, it caught up with him. And so he didn't really tour, didn't really put anything out. So he'd like release stuff. So much so that we jumped forward to 2000. What, what, I'm sorry, what, what year are we talking about here? Uh, 2004 was when. Okay, the- yeah, I, 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 I just looked it up. He apparently did have a mild heart attack at the end of this tour. Oh, wow. Oh, really? What year was yeah, that? Yeah, I, I, I knew I remembered and, and, you know, at this point, he was starting to withdraw from the public a tad. Yeah. Um, and, and was not as public a figure as he had once been. And at, apparently at the end of this tour, he did have a very mild, a very, a very mild heart attack. But uh, but he did have one. I knew I'd heard that somewhere, but it was at the, apparently at the very end of this tour. And it wasn't something that he talked up or mentioned much afterward. But it, it I, I did remember hearing that. And I, I just looked it up as we were speaking and that is a thing that happened so interesting that wasn't in the i think three books that i i read for him i don't think it was ever mentioned but here's the thing that doesn't shock me us not hearing about something that happened to david bowie is not shocking after you find out about his death yeah uh right Uh, and and really if you if you look at the way he lived about the last 20 ish years of his life it was considerably different than the earlier portions yeah he was still there he's still making art of various kinds you know music and movies and and i think actually painting which you may get into um but he was much less of a public figure than he had been previously yeah he actually would maintain a pretty low profile for the coming years he would pop up for two 2005 performances one with rk fired at summer stage and another at the fashion rocks fundraiser at new york city's famed radio city music hall Mm. and in 2006 he joined pink floyd to lend his voice to the classic from both sid barrett and gilmore comfortably numb era pink floyd classic at the royal albert hall performance and also like here's the thing if it's at the Royal Albert Hall, I will probably watch it. And it's a big deal. 
for some reason, they have just pumped out some of the most incredible things like the, I think they've housed all of the reimaginings of Les Miserables and they did Phantom of the Opera. That's right. And just like, I will watch whatever they they what is the uh, uh will you might know the the clapton live album is it 24 nights is that what it's called i think it's that's recorded that was recorded live uh, during like an almost residency he did at the royal albert hall however many nights he did is, is the name of the album and i want to say 24 maybe it is 25 that's one of the best live albums i've ever heard in my life it's phenomenal it's the one i'm yeah oh uh, yeah yeah but he did comfortably numb at the royal albert hall uh, oh wow that same year he also received a Lifetime Achievement Grammy, as well as to, he was in, I, I'm glad that you mentioned this, but he was uh, in a Christopher Nolan box office hit, The Prestige, as Nikola Tesla. Which I t- always forget. Ugh. I mean, here's the thing. It's, okay, this movie has everything going for it. It has got Christian Bale and Hugh Jackman. It's led by Christopher Nolan. We saw it in the theaters, mm-hmm. and it's got David Bowie as Nikola Tesla. It's a winner. Yeah. It is a winner, and I will always forget that it even exists. We own the movie, <laughs> and I forget it exists. Yeah, and I, I've never oh. seen it, despite the fact that I am a huge fan of David Bowie, and I think uh, Dr. Tesla is the most brilliant human being to ever walk the face of planet Earth. There you go. So tell you what, T, I will bring this home. Don't bother. I'm not going to watch it. You will sit down and you will watch it with me. Oh, and I do need to throw out, I did the research, and TJ, you are correct, it is 24 nights recorded. 24 nights, okay. I thought it was 25, but it's 24. In May 2007, Bowie was the curator of the highly successful 10-day Highline Arts and Music Festival in New York. In June, he was honored with the Lifetime Achievement Award at the 11th Annual Webby Awards, known as the Oscars of the Internet, (laughs) for pushing the boundaries between art and technology. Later in 2000, he started himself in an acclaimed episode of Extras with Ricky Gervais, which was on HBO. 2012 saw the dedication of a plaque at Heaton Hall, which was his home, and the scene of the Ziggy Stardust cover shoot to commemorate the 40th anniversary of the release of The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and Spiders from Mars. And of course, just David Bowie over 40 years. Still flashing forward, in 2013, it was announced that David Bowie's archives had been given unprecedented access to the prestigious Victoria and Albert Museum for David Bowie Is, which was an exhibition to just be presented at the the Victoria and Albert Museum, making it the first time a museum has been given access to the complete archives of the artist, and the exhibition has gone on to break records in the U.S., Berlin, and France. David Bowie is continued to tour the world with stops in Australia, the Netherlands, Bologna, and Japan. And here's the thing. I took it out because we were running a little long in the tooth on this episode, but that exhibition was still going when he passed away. And so they had to decide whether or not to end the exhibition to change the name because it's called David Bowie Is. <laughs> and I, at the end, what they did was they left the exhibition open for another four weeks so that people could come and mourn. And I think then they finally ended up closing it in 2017. So I might be wrong on the dates. Forgive me if that's incorrect. But um, on January 8th, 2013, which was his 66th birthday, 
He suddenly and without fanfare released a new single entitled Where Are We Now and announced the release of a new album titled The Next Day. Despite a complete lack of conventional promotion, not a single interview or live performance would take place. This was David Bowie's 27th studio album. Wow. And the first in 10 years to hit number one in the UK and 18 other countries and entered the US singles chart at two at number two i remember when this happened and it 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 came so out of left field it's like um oh hey everybody i just dropped a new album go get it and that that's pretty much (laughs) it that's all that happened and other people have done that since bowie did it who who they they like it's a surprise that they up out of nowhere send this real cryptic tweet and the next day they drop an album that has hasn't been promoted and that you didn't know was coming but yeah. David Bowie was one of the first ones I remember doing that. Yeah. The next day was basically equated to any other of his classics. And the New York Times called it Bowie's Twilight Masterpiece. Hmm. While the Independent named it the greatest comeback album in rock and roll history, as good as anything he's made. Wow. Bowie would remain radio silent for the duration of the next day's stay on the charts with only occasional visual interpretations, uh, such as his take on The Stars Are Out Tonight, which starred David and Tilda Swinton what? as suburban housewife and husband. Uh, the next day, with Gary Oldman as a bishop. And, I mean, I mean, you can go onto the internet and find any of these. It's incredible. But, yeah, that's he. he did something that other people have done now but he was one of the first he's one of the first people to just be like oh, by the way there's a new album coming yeah here it is here it is come get, come get it kids and then people are like hey can we interview you about this and he's like no nah, i'm good no i'm good thanks i'll just uh chill at home with my really hot wife but but thanks <laughs> thanks for asking though ridiculous <laughs> okay so in 2014 david bowie's 50th year in music. That is bonkers. Not 50 amazing. Years of life on the planet, 50 years of music was yeah. commemorated with the release of the compilation Nothing Has Changed. And I own that album. You got it on vinyl, right? I have that yeah. on vinyl, which I'm kind of pissy about because the first disc, Nothing Has Changed, with all of his classics on it, uh, totally fine. Everything has changed is warped, and I am pissed. So, sadly, Bowie was diagnosed with liver cancer in mid-2014. He only told his family and the people that he was working with at the time about his condition. Ivo Van Hove, which he was collaborating with for the off-Broadway musical Lazarus, was told by Bowie himself. Tony Visconti, Bowie's friend and producer of many of his albums, including his final album, Black Star, was told in January 2015. Visconti recalled that Bowie was completely bald from his chemotherapy when they spoke. However, musicians who had worked with Bowie over the years, like Mike Garrison, Jerry Leonard, Brian Eno, Niall Rogers, uh, Reeves Gabriel, Tina Turner, Iggy Pop, Sterling Campbell, Earl Slick, and so many others weren't told about his illness. Wow. So he only told his family and the people he was working with. People that... Right, that second. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. So I have a question. So he he did undergo chemo when he uh, lost his hair and all that stuff. So and and you maybe you touch on this. By the time he gets around to recording the last videos that we ever see of him, 
had his hair naturally grown back or is he wearing wigs or how, how what, what's going on there? Um, well, he had gone through the chemotherapy, so his hair had grown back and they decided that during, I do touch on this, but they decided that during the video shoot or the recording of Lazarus that he was going to stop treatment. Oh, wow. Yeah. Cause I guess it, it wasn't, I, I, I touch on this in a little bit. So, and there's, I'll say there's a lot of parallels between the way he leaves and the way one of his friends had left. 25 years beforehand yeah and, um, whose concert he sang at and maybe we'll get into some of that a little bit later yeah spring 2015 brought the announcement of the broadway theater production lazarus a collaboration between bowie and the renowned playwright edna walsh which was being directed by evo van hove it was inspired by the novel the man who fell to earth lazarus centers on the character of thomas newton which was portrayed hmm. by Bowie in the 1976 screen adaptation, featuring new Bowie songs along fresh arrangements of music from his entire catalog. Lazarus opened December 17th to rave reviews. The New York Times raves, ice cold boats of ecstasy shoots like Nova's through the glamorous muddle and murk of Lazarus. The great sounding, great looking, mind numbing new musical built around songs by David Bowie. While Rolling Stone hailed Lazarus as a surrealistic tour de force, milk swimming lingerie sniffing gin chugging theater at its finest and a completely sold out new york run the closing date of which was january 20th 2016 we was proclaimed david bowie day by mm. new york city mayor bill de blasio on july 25th 2016 it was announced that lazarus would open in london uh, at the king's cross theater to run october 25th 2016 through january 22nd 2017 so he's got about a year left right yeah by mid 2015 it was hoped that the cancer was in remission but by november 2015 the cancer had spread throughout his body and david was told that his condition was terminal wow he was he was in the middle of filming the video so oh god hang on <sighs> he was in the middle of filming the video for a song lazarus when the decision was made to end his cancer treatment so what okay so well when time frame wise when is he filming the video for Lazarus because no we wouldn't see it until January of 16 I don't think or somewhere somewhere around there what 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 what's the time frame that we're in now where he's actually recording said video um it just said November 2015 when the, the cancer had spread through his body but remember oh geez oh wow so he's like he's two he's got two months two left. months, That's two months yeah I didn't, I didn't realize it was that close yeah so because honestly if you watch either black star or lazarus you wouldn't know anything was wrong with him he's very thin but david was always thin um yeah wow I mean, his movement isn't restricted he's he's moving around and very well in all of them and doing the in black star doing that shake that dance and almost strutting toward the camera and doing it making you know, gesturing and stuff and he, he he you would never have known that he wasn't healthy or that he was that close to, to death at that point, I guess is what I'm getting at. He was still performing with a smile on his face and certainly yes. the Black Star, like yes. when he calls himself a flash in the pan and the mm -hmm. great I am, like he does the like <laughs> nanner nanner thing to the camera yep. and like he does it with like this sly smile and like you never knew. We never knew. So, like I said, he was in the middle of filming uh, the video for a song, Lazarus, when the decision was made to end his cancer treatments. Bowie's last public appearance before his death was at the December 7th, 2015 opening of the musical Lazarus. Wow. 
Bowie released his final studio album, Black Star, on January 8th, 2016, on his 69th birthday. Bowie reportedly wrote a five-year plan for what he wanted done with his music after he died. So here's a little timeline of Black Star. Oh, and but he's, he's still, he, he's thinking this far ahead about music when he knows that his, his days are literally numbered. Yeah. That he can see the end, but he's like, okay, now here, here's what I would like done with my music catalog once I'm gone. Yeah. That he's still, he's this close to the end of his life. He's still thinking about music. That's amazing. And, and having a head of music. Yeah. So on October 25th, 2015, it was confirmed that, and it's kind of like Prince did when he became a symbol. The, the album Black Star is just a black star. Right. But it's pronounced Black Star. And <laughs> so it's easier explaining it in text than it is on a podcast but literally it does it say anything on the cover i don't think it does does it i don't actually own it so i don't know i don't own it but is it because you know like led zeppelin 4 actually doesn't have any words on the sleeve at all hmm. yeah and, and i don't know that black star is much different than that I, i'm sitting there trying to think i think it's just we black can look star? it up but I, I think it's just it's just the black star i mean would you would you put it past bowie no so the album's 10 minute titular opening was released as a single on november 20th 2015 accompanied by a short film directed by johan rennick which received a sold-out theatrical premiere at brooklyn's nighthawk cinema featuring a q a with rennick and tony visconti a, a second single lazarus followed on december 18th 2015 along with another rennick directed video preceded by a theatrical interpretation of the song making a leap from stage to screen when michael c hall and the musicians from the play performed lazarus on the december 17 2016 episode of the late show with stephen colbert so very cool that they got to be on stephen colbert because here's another south carolina connection yep. Yep. Stephen colbert i will never be the most famous person mm -hmm. from my state because we have stephen colbert and james brown because i'm your brother and i'm i'm from there too and hootie and edwin mccain and james brown james i think i think james might win maybe chadwick, chadwick boseman Ooh. chadwick boseman larry holmes yeah has to rank in there somewhere kevin garnett oh kevin garnett yeah. kevin garnett yeah Ray allen Ray we, got nothing. South we got nothing t we will never be the most famous doo -doo clowny okay so i just wanted to read a couple of the reviews for black star rolling stone said that it was one of his best anti-pop masterpieces since the 70s bowie's most fulfilling spin away from the glam legend pop charm since the 1970s black star is strange and that's good <laughs> uh the new york times said strange daring ultimately rewarding and once emotive and cryptic, structured and supponymous, and above all, willful refusal to cater. Each song on Black Star is restless and mercurial. He may be briefly dropping his mask. He may be trying on a new one. Either way, he's not letting himself or his listeners take things easy. Mm. And that is so, yeah. so prophetic. He may it be is, and it is. And the, the weird thing about that, it's not weird. It's, I mean, Bowie had embraced, as we've said throughout this, every musical genre pretty much you can name i don't think he's done i don't think he dabbled in polka but any outside of that nothing i can think of this is almost orchestral yes but if you also listen to black star you can hear that jazz influence totally seeping in with yep. that with the saxophone coming in to almost ease that weirdness that you called it like that part that you don't like what he's doing with his voice 
Yeah, that. I, it almost yeah, that saxophone piece. is there to almost ease that pressure off that part mm-hmm. of the song. Well, you didn't. I, I'm funny. You didn't like what he does. The the alteration of his voice on Fame, right? Yeah. And yeah. I, I don't like. I don't like it. Not only do I not like the voice alteration thing that they do on Black Star, it creeps me, and I like. I really don't like it. it well, it's, also- it's one of those. It's almost like the car wreck where you can't look away. I'm fascinated by it, and it's great, but it creeps me, and I I don't like it, but I do like it. If that makes sense. Yeah, I am. Uh, I'm. I'm on the. I, I'm firmly on the side of the fence that yes, it is disturbing. But if you have all the context for it, it's something eerie and beautiful. Mm-hmm. And the more I talk about it, the more emotional I get. So I'm just going to go back to my written script, um, <laughs> because I, I know what's coming up, and I'm going to have a hard time with it. So. Black Star was the first David Bowie album to hit number one in the U.S. and top the charts in more than 20 countries, including the U.K., Australia, Belgium, Canada, Croatia, Denmark, Finland, France, Germany, Greece, Italy, Ireland, Japan, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Norway, Poland, Spain, Sweden, and Switzerland. Wow. Yeah. Black Star's Closer I Can't Give Anything Away was released on April 6, 2016 as a third single. An animated interpretation of the song by the designer Jonathan Barnbrook, whose relationship with Bowie began with Heathen, would continue through reality the next day and Black Star, as well as the graphics for the David Bowie Is exhibition, was unveiled that same day. Okay, so we're up to the day. On January 10th, 2016... English singer, songwriter, and actor David Bowie died at his Lafayette Street home in New York City, having suffered from liver cancer for 18 months. And, and this is just de- literal days after he's dropped the video for, uh, which one came first? Was it Black Star or Lazarus? They both came on the same day, I think. I, well, I thought one came out like the 6th and one the 16th or something like that. Yeah, I remember watching both of them. Uh, I, I, yeah, maybe it was both, but they had. It, but we're talking literal days after this album debuted and these these out these uh, videos debuted and everything. And it's and and again, there's no very much like Neil Peart who we previously covered. You didn't know he was sick. You didn't know it was coming. Well, hang, it, hang it was on, it hang, was hang. just a shock. Yeah. No, we got we got this coming. Hang on. Yeah. So he died two days after the release of his twenty fifth studio solo album. Black wow. Star, which, consi- which coincided with his 69th birthday. So Bowie had kept his illness private, and his friends and fans alike were surprised by his death. Makeshift memorials were created in London, New York City, Berlin, and other cities that Bowie had lived. Sales of his albums and singles saw a significant increase. Many commentators noted Bowie's impact on music, fashion, and culture, and wrote of his status as one of the most influential musical artists of all time. Numerous musicians and public figures also expressed their grief. So when it comes to the fans, memorials to David Bowie were created around the world. The hours following his death in Brixton in London, the area where he was born, a mural was painted in 2013 by Australian artist Jimmy C., And that became a shrine to which fans left flowers, records, handwritten messages. And the mural features Bowie as he appeared on his iconic Aladdin Sane cover with a red and blue stripe or the the lightning bolt appearing diagonally across his face as if it had been painted upon. In Berlin, fans left flowers outside the flat in which Bowie and Iggy had lived while Bowie created his seminal Berlin trilogy of albums, which were Low, Heroes, and Lodger in the late 70s as well as the pop albums The Idiot and Lust for Life, 
which Bowie had produced. Flowers are also left outside Bowie's New York City apartment next to his star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in Los Angeles. Uh, in Milan, fans held a flash mob memorial service, mm. while fans in Rio de Janeiro paid tribute to Bowie and the February's Rio Carnival. In Japan, hours after Bowie's death, a devoted fan was detained for threatening to commit suicide with a box cutter in public. Wow. Good grief. So as far as other musicians, what they had to say about Bowie, Tony Visconti, who produced a number of Bowie's albums, including the Berlin Trilogy, Young Americans, and Bowie's final studio album, wrote, he always did what he wanted to do, and he wanted to do it his way, and he wanted to do the best way. His death was no different from his life. It was a work of art. He made Black Star for us as his parting gift. I knew for a year that that was the way it would be. I wasn't, however, prepared for it. He was an extraordinary man, full of love and life, and he will always be with us. And for now, it's appropriate to cry. Mick Jagger said, David was always an inspiration to me. He was a true original. He was wonderfully shameless in his work. We had so many good times together and he was my friend. I will never forget him. Friend and collaborator Iggy Pop described him on social media as the light of my life, while singer Madonna tweeted, talented, unique, genius, game changer, and sang Rebel Rebel at her Houston concert. Queen, for whom he collaborated on with Under Pressure, retweeted a link to the video of the song with the words, this is our last dance. And another post said, we're very sad to hear of David Bowie's death, a truly remarkable artist, which was on the Facebook page of Manfred Mann's Earth Band. There we go. There it is, ladies that, and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen. Our, the federally mandated reference to Manfred Mann's Earth Band Earth podcast. That has been satisfied. Thank you. I had to do it that way. I'm sorry. I had to say and, that one. And, you know, really interesting, you know, obviously you would expect Queen to acknowledge him. And I alluded to it a few minutes ago. You know, he almost went out the way Freddie did in terms of he told you goodbye in a video when you, in retrospect, it's as plain as day what's going on. When you're watching it for the first time, you perhaps did not know what you were looking at. Those are the days of our lives is one of the most touching music if videos. With, with the knowledge of what was to come, yes. And how you could go back now and watch that video and not realize what you were seeing, it's, it's almost like, how did I not, how did I not know? Yeah. How did I not know what that was? Because he looks ill and he is obviously telling you goodbye. And Dave, David didn't look sick per se, but you watch either of the videos for Black Star or Lazarus especially. But he's he's telling you goodbye. And yeah. That, that's that's readily apparent with the knowledge after armed after the fact with the knowledge that he's sick. You know. Yeah, and you watch that completely different. Yeah, but it, it's but it's. It's almost like he almost followed the script that Freddie left a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, there were there were a lot of people. Uh, Kate Bush, who very rarely gives public statements, told The Guardian that David Bowie had everything. He was intelligent, imaginative, brave, charismatic, cool, sexy, and truly inspirational, both visually and musically. He created such a staggeringly brilliant body of work, yes, but... So much of it was so good. There are people who make great work, but who else has left a mark like him? Nobody. Uh, you had other people like Depeche Mode and The Who and Bruce Springsteen mm -hmm. who commented over here on Each Street, we're feeling the great loss of David Bowie. He was a visionary and an early supporter of our music. 
And Yoko Ono also noted Bowie's friendship with her and John Lennon and thanked him for being a father figure to her son following Lennon's death. And given the uh, astronomical theme of several of his works, tributes also came from numerous astronauts and astronomers, including uh, Chris Hadfield, who I do believe was the one that did the version of Major Tom uh, on the ISS. The first music video in space, right? First music video in space. And Neil deGrasse Tyson. NASA tweeted, the stars look very different today from their official Twitter account, directly quoting Space Oddity. And that is where I'm going to end this because if not, I am just going to cry. There's no conversation except for to talk about how much David Bowie was an influence on your life in some way, shape, or form. Because I know I look at David Bowie and he he did so much. He did music, fashion, theater, film. He took on personas and uh, he kind of did successfully what I would love to do in my normal life. But what he left was a lasting legacy of over 50 years of music. Uh, something that we can still go back to. We were listening to it yesterday. <laughs> like it's timeless. It's beautiful. And I really, really miss him. And I know that the day that I found out that he passed away, I cried. Yeah. Well, and you know, he was part of the the slaughter of 16 or whatever we want to call it, which, which was such a horrible year in 2020, at least rivaled it if, if it didn't surpass it. But, you know, within literally just days, you know, Glenn Fry passed away and then David Bowie passed away. Not that that was just after in late 15, Lemmy had passed away. Yeah. Scott Wyland had, 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 yeah. had died. Uh, and then the year to come would see Prince and George Michael and Merle Haggard. And <laughs> it's just all these, these, all these, these all time greats leave us. Um, and David was one of the first in that, I, I believe. Yeah, we should have known it was going to be a crap year when that was January. Yeah, that's how yeah that was like early January and, and Bowie passed away. I remember waking up and flipping around and there was nothing on. And I think I put it on uh, the now defunct VH1 classic. And they, they, were, they played three or four Bowie videos in a row. And I was like, oh, they must be doing some kind of rock block thing or whatever. And they go to a commercial break and there was a quote from the song Starman on the screen. And it said... David Bowie, whatever year to 2016. And I was like, do what? Huh? Um, Which was, it was jarring. It really was because he's one of those guys who had literally been there our entire lives. Because his musical career started well before any of us was born. And and had been a fixture in our lives since we were born. And, 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 And not just in music, as you alluded to, in in acting, in fashion, in almost every facet of your life, he was there in some way. Yeah. Um, so he's one of those guys that had always been there. So you feel like he's always going to be. So when he's not, it is um, very jarring. From you, you said, "How will I remember him?" Obviously, he touched on every facet of entertainment. But for me, it's always about the music with him. That uh, this guy who. Went from Uncle Arthur, just one more reference to it, Will, for you. I appreciate um, that. <laughs> but that he embraced jazz and heavy metal and techno and, and, and you could say in, in some aspects disco and pop. And it, like there's almost nothing that he didn't gravitate towards and pull in, in into his sound and make it part of what he did, but made it 
somehow different. Like there's almost not a musical genre. Again, I don't recall him doing any like roll out the beer barrel polka kind of stuff, but outside of that, like he, he touched almost every base that there is for music and, but made it his own. He wasn't, he was not a copycat. He was all like, he would adopt new sounds, but somehow he stayed just ahead of the curve. Always. Always. Um, to where people were always chasing his tail. He wasn't somebody who was trying to stay relevant by doing whatever was popular at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it would it would sound current, but it would always sound like like a like a little bit ahead somehow. And he just he's one of the most unique, groundbreaking, shape shifting, chameleon like artists of our lifetime. And I don't I don't really know how else to put it uh, other than other than that. He's uh, there. There are a handful of people who leave music better than they found it. And and he's clearly one of those people. I, I, there's, it's hard to imagine a musical world uh, if Bowie had not been in it. And I don't, I don't really know how else to put it. Yep. Well, I think you guys have hit all the major notes. One of the things we mentioned in our earlier discourse on social media was that Bowie defined himself as the artist who cannot be defined. And I don't think anything sums it up more than that, whether it's, you know, the acting and, you know, with our generation, it was Labyrinth that really sort of put him on the scene. And then we got to go back and see all these other parts of him. And it's sort of realizing, wait a minute, this guy's been here the whole time. So the only thing I'll add was a tweet that Simon Pegg shared. He did not write. There was a big controversy about this. He shared a tweet the day Bowie died and said, the earth is four billion years old. Don't weep because we lost David Bowie. Celebrate the fact that we were alive at the same time as David Bowie. Yeah. I, I think that alone is enough to... to that's, a, that's a good way to put it. With yeah. just tr- such a tremendous catalog, tremendous contribution to arts and culture at large that, uh, you know, there's a lot to celebrate there. And I think that's what we should do, including, as you put it, yes, Uncle Arthur, which is a standout piece, in my opinion. Okay, you're fired. And I'm now off the podcast. Good night, everybody. <laughs> So that that's closing out our 172 part series on David Bowie. <laughs> yeah. Well, but now, now like, hold on, LD. How, how how do you sum it up? How how do I sum the entire? Not, not to make you not to make you weepy and stuff, but Will and I both kind of offer something. How what? I, I mean, how do you how would you sum up what he meant to the world in, at, at large? I I am a strange person. I have always been a black sheep, a weirdo, an outcast, a nerd. Um, I've been called a lot of names because I'm, I'm a, such the unicorn that I am. I find myself in outrageous situations with people of note that, you know, you just, you, can all, you can't make this stuff up. You live your life as a Mad Lib. And I think me and David Bowie are kindred spirits in that way, that I look to him and he has done theater and I did theater and he's done movies and I've done movies. And he did fashion, I did fashion, but he did it a million times better and I will never, ever be on his level. But God bless, isn't it nice to have somebody who you can look at their career, their robust career and go, that's exactly what I want my life to be like. And I can only try as hard as I can to be like him in so many ways. A loving spouse, someone who gave their time and their talent to people someone who was so beautiful and so unique and we're so lucky that we had him in our lives and we're so lucky that he had so much talent and he shared it with us. He didn't hide it. He gave it to us. And we have his movies 
and we have his his albums and his music videos that we can always go back and see and you will always be able to find something new and something different and i miss him and i love him and that's all i gotta say it's and and he once opened for t-rex by doing a mime show. <laughs> Love it. I mean, I feel like I feel like that's something. He was booed off the stage for my for doing a mom opening act for T Rex. I mean, the seventies were a hell of a hell of a decade, dude. <laughs> Seven seventies were weird, man. Seventies and eighties. Lots lots of questionable choices were made. Yep. But uh God bless David Bowie for just being and creating and being beautiful and wonderful. And um, if you guys think we're doing a great job, I'm just going to go straight to our socials or I'm going to cry. <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I'm so emotional right now that I'm sweating. This also, is... our air conditioner has been off and it's about 90 degrees outside. <sighs> so at least two things in combination. So here's our social stuff. If you think that we're doing a great job and you'd like to give us money, you can do that at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Rock and Roll LT. Our Instagram is Rock and Roll Heaven LT. And uh, if you guys check our Instagram, that's where if we have any weird hiccups or strange things occur that we may or may not be able to put out an episode, that's where you're going to find all of those things. On Instagram, it's the easiest place for us to, you know, meet and tell you guys stuff. But uh, our Facebook is Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. Our website, still not saying it. And you can email us at Rock and Roll Heaven. <laughs> lt at gmail.com and please make sure to check out all the other awesome pantheon podcasts at pantheonpodcast.com and on that note i will say thank you for checking this episode out please make sure to check us out next time where we're going to be talking about rick james bitch as i love that it's not just rick james it's rick you, james. Have, you, to. you have to and you we, have will talk, to. we will talk about why my brother insists on saying rick james bitch and why it's not just rick james I'm sure we're going to cover that on the. We will, yes. I think we'll we'll probably touch on that. <laughs> just a just a little bit for no other reason than that. <laughs> so we will be covering the life and times of Rick James. Bitch. <laughs> so please check us out, unless you're turned off by the fact that we hate Morrissey. <laughs> we I lost cry. our entire Morrissey fan base. We, lost, we lost everyone who loves Morrissey. <laughs> yep. Yeah, both of them. <laughs> His tens. Of well, what a what a crushing loss that that all that, that all both of them have left us. <laughs> all right, guys, thank you so much. Um, I'm gonna end this episode the way that Bowie ushered himself out of the mortal coil. And before I do, guys, say goodbye. Bye, everybody. Thank you, David Bowie. Goodbye. And on that note, we are going to close out this epic showpiece with Lazarus. Stolen 
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett. 
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.